Welcome to the Alternative Design Podcast, where we empower creatives to rethink space and how it's designed. I'm your host, Kaylin Reed, a Metro Detroiter, a former interior designer turned brand ambassador, and I'm inspired by the forward-thinking concepts found in the margins of our design community. Join us as we go deeper than the mainstream conversations buzzing around the industry and present an alternative way to think about how we can design for a better human experience. As U.S. Olympian Simone Biles shocked the world by dropping out of the 2021 Summer Games to focus on her mental health, we're reminded that we too must prioritize the fitness of our minds and our emotions. The wake-up call is here. After a grueling year where almost everyone was touched by anxiety, worry, fear, and loneliness, we're now looking at a shadow pandemic after the viral one where waves of those who are struggling with mental health issues are in need of care and treatment. The problem we face is one of space. We simply don't have the capacity to treat the amount of patients that are pouring into our healthcare system. In this episode, we talked to Stacey Root and Stephanie Vito from Canon Design about how creatives can meet this demand by looking at building alternative treatment spaces for those dealing with a mental health crisis. We're also going to help break down the stigma, not only around mental health, but also around long-term treatment facilities or asylums. One of the potential alternative solutions could be the use of pop-up architecture, similar to what we saw during the pandemic in order to meet the demand for testing and vaccination sites. We talked to Damian Kurtz and Bronte Morris-Pullman, recent graduates from the University of Toronto, to share their thesis project titled Art by Pop-Up COVID-19 Testing Center, which blurs the lines between art museums and healthcare architecture. This is episode seven, Pop-Ups to Break Down Stigmas. Regardless of kind of scale of a crisis, it's not just caused most of the time by a single moment. It's days of things kind of compounding, skipping medication, getting bad news, And then all of a sudden, you know, you drop your wallet and change falls out everywhere in the middle of the store. And that's the the kind of last straw. That's the moment um, where you you need a a space to step away. You need a calming environment. You need access to uh, a space to just go in, shut the door and scream or whatever. Right. And how can we start to think about these these elements um, from what we do on a regular basis in clinical environments and how that might change the overall manifestation of spaces out in our community. That was Stephanie Vito, a designer from Canon Design. Before the pandemic, one in five American adults were experiencing mental illnesses that included schizophrenia, depression, and PTSD. About a year later, we're seeing these numbers skyrocket. In March of 2020, a KFF report found that 53% of U.S. adults said that worry and stress related to the pandemic was causing a negative impact on their health. When they conducted another survey in March of 2021, 47% of U.S. adults still reported negative mental health impacts from the pandemic. Some are predicting a wave of mental health issues and calling it the shadow pandemic after the viral one. 
that it will be a surge resulting from the isolation, loneliness, fear, worry, and depression that many of us encountered last year. And just like in COVID, the medical system will have to leap to accommodate and treat its people. We're already seeing it. It's not, we're not predicting anything here. Our clients are reporting that they are sending people away and people that are seeking treatment are just not getting it. People who were already struggling, their conditions have just exasperated. This is Stacy Root, healthcare practice leader at Canon Design in Denver, Colorado. And on top of that, we've got folks who all of a sudden, because of isolation or other reasons related to the pandemic, now are stepping forward with mental health needs that until now no one had recognized. So it's a double whammy problem right now. And I'll kind of add to that two kind of population, specific populations that come to mind for that second part that Stacey just mentioned are frontline workers dealing with the effects of seeing that day in and day out, seeing the effects of COVID day in and day out for over a year now. A lot of them potentially, whether diagnosed or not, are going to have kind of long-term PTSD from this experience, from dealing with this kind of level of trauma day in and day out. And then also the children, school-aged, K-12 realm, kids that are used to daily social interaction that all of a sudden was completely severed. And I think those two populations in particular, I think, is a, a really big focus area for the next five years to help society see if we can uh, recover from this trauma. I, I think, too, we could safely add two more groups to that list. First would be educators who have just had a pretty wild ride, really, for the last year and a half in terms of mm -hmm. just what they expect their day-to-day -to, -day to look like. And then the second group that is tremendously at risk would include seniors, right? They have, mm -hmm. a lot of them have lost friends, lost family, and have been un unable to attend funerals or to reach out to people. And just adding on top of what can be a pretty isolated existence is this forced isolation. It's super problematic. It's absolutely problematic. The mental distress from all that went on in 2020 took place against a backdrop of already high rates of mental illness and substance abuse that was there before the pandemic. It also doesn't help that communities of color, women, and those with pre-existing mental health challenges were disproportionately affected. And while we could continue naming populations that are of high concern, Stephanie reminded us that it's important to keep in mind that everyone has been impacted by this and we're on a journey of recovery together. Based on what we've read or seen, there's really not a prediction of an end in sight, if you will, if, if it's not dealt with properly. This is something that's going to be long term for several years. That's going to take time to process and work through and get the right infrastructure in place, figure out the right processes, the right systems to reach these people that Stacey's mentioning are having trouble even getting access right now. Like Stephanie said, it will take us time to get the right infrastructure, process, and solutions into place to address America's mental health needs post-COVID. I mentioned earlier that while most everyone has dealt with negative mental impacts of the shutdown, many with pre-existing psychiatric conditions experienced an exacerbation of symptoms. This makes it much more likely to encounter someone who's suffering from a crisis in our daily lives. Maybe you've gone to the grocery store and observed someone having a breakdown in the dairy aisle, or maybe you've encountered someone on the subway who is having a psychotic episode. 
But what do you do when that happens? Most often in our society, it goes two ways. A call to the police department, where the sick enter the criminal justice system, or a call to the ambulance to be taken to the emergency room. But there's a problem here. I mean, jail is going to be the worst possible place for someone suffering like this. We're going to understand more about why that is in our next episode, where we speak to the Nashville Sheriff, Darren Hall, about designing for decarceration. But in this episode, I want to explore why emergency rooms are not the most appropriate space for someone suffering a mental health crisis and how design can help. It's a tremendous problem. What ends up happening is that if someone presents suicidal in the emergency department, it ends up taking an entire staff member to to handle that one-on-one watch, which almost no emergency rooms are equipped to handle. So there are a couple ways that we can start to solve it. One is the reason they wait in the emergency department for so long is that there just are no inpatient beds available. And that is nationwide, it's particularly pronounced here in Colorado, but, but generally, there's nowhere to take folks. So they end up waiting in the emergency department. So part of the solution is going to be, for better or worse, to create more facilities and more beds where people can get longer term treatment. If you've ever had the unfortunate chance to go to the emergency room, you know how expensive it can be to receive treatment and how stressful the entire experience can be. Like Stacey said, you're often waiting for a bed because there just aren't enough to go around. During the pandemic, the design world championed rapid response, temporary, prefabricated, or adaptable architecture that could serve as pop-ups for medical treatment and COVID testing across the country. The spike in cases required us to reimagine healthcare design so that we could meet the rapidly evolving needs of hospitals and treatment centers. We saw things like parking garages turn into site treatment facilities and triage tents in Central Park. One idea I came across was a modular pop-up that combined the healing power of art and distraction. This concept was proposed by Damian Kurtz and Bronte Morris-Poolman from the University of Toronto Architecture and Health Graduate Design Studio for their thesis project. And while the original design intent was for COVID testing, we're going to see how this could be an excellent solution for an alternative treatment space for mental health. When they're assembled, they're about half the size of a standard shipping container. But when they're disassembled, you can get around 10 of our modules in a standard 20-foot shipping container. So we use the dimensions of what we thought would be at the most standard shipping container and, and just worked backwards from there to engineer our design. We have staff offices and staff spaces, and we were able to do that in a way that would offer both the staff and patients privacy and help keep symptomatic and asymptomatic people visiting the test center separate. Our goal was to make something that was very simple, very easily constructible, and could work in many different settings. When we looked at the city of Toronto and the demographics of where a lot of the COVID cases were, we actually went to those areas and looked around and tried to find building typologies that were common throughout the city and ones that could have this infrastructure deployed within it. So it was always the idea of having a host structure and then having the pop-up within it. We looked at churches or any religious facility because they normally have a large open area where their congregation would be, as well as big box stores. Since they have a, a pretty regular column grid structure that a modular system can fit pretty easily in between, we felt that it was a good opportunity to use the healing power of art 
and any local artists in the community and give them the opportunity to showcase their work in a setting where a lot of people will get to see it, but also that the therapeutic properties of it would be beneficial since testing is a pretty stressful experience for a lot of people as well as vaccinations. What Bronte mentioned about how pop-ups were placed based on location is important, and we'll unpack that in a moment. But I want to focus on one of the driving forces behind their design, art. And yes, local art, but specifically attention restoration theory based on the environmental psychologist Stephen Kaplan. He posed that humans need positive distractions from stressful situations and that engaging in meaningful experiences with nature can promote that. And not only could this have relevance in COVID testing centers, but the clear connection would be to implement this strategy in spaces focused on treatment of mental health conditions where lowering cortisol levels is a good idea for everyone. I think our main idea was we kind of wanted to take the art that people are still able to see during the pandemic, which is murals or outdoor art in Toronto that's actually pretty prominent. And the city of Toronto has a public art program that's funded by the city. And so the idea was that maybe in this time where those artists aren't being, um, their work isn't being recruited as much by the city or there's kind of a lull in the market that this would be a good time for them to display their work. And because the pop-up is quite big and it spans a large space, murals are easily translatable into the structure. And also the artists we chose were actually artists that are, are from the GTA and their art currently is on murals across the city. But um, that was just kind of an exemplar that they were specific pieces that we really liked and enjoyed. But like I said, we always imagined that it would be art that was specific to the neighborhood that the pop-up was going to be deployed. One of the coolest parts of these pop-ups is that the user can walk up to the mural and scan a QR code and be redirected to an online platform that supports each installation. What an awesome opportunity to relook at the type of art that we're utilizing in health-related spaces, especially when the art can engage the local community as well. And understanding the local community, specifically its accessibility to medical treatment and testing, was key in determining the possible location of these pop-ups. That's the, a major problem with these underserved communities. It's quite frankly just a matter of accessibility. So these people, they may not have a car or access to public transit may not feel comfortable taking public transit, especially during the height of the pandemic. And a lot of the vaccination centers or test centers that have been emerging, they were there and you could get to them. But if you were in a community that uh, relied on a car or public transit, it would be hard to get to. That's why people couldn't get tested in these areas. So we, we definitely looked at that and that influenced where we placed our test center. We, we basically placed it in an area of the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area, that people refer to as the primary care desert. So it really lacks the infrastructure that would be required to host these sorts of facilities. And that was a leading reason why we decided to place it there. By strategically embedding the pop-ups within communities that are underserved, barriers to receiving quality care are lessened and we could build the overflow spaces that hospitals and facilities need. I think the government and our healthcare system is kind of realizing that these pop-up structures are something that can be used for so many things and are definitely really practical and economical. And I think that in the future, hopefully they'll take more time into investing in the infrastructure they're using. I think there's hope for in the future that the pop-ups can be somewhere more therapeutic and less sterile. 
This episode is sponsored by Interwoven, coming to the market in 2021. Interwoven's passion lies in challenging the status quo in health. Interwoven thinks about the design of space differently and believes that by putting people at the heart of everything we do, we can help deliver the best results. Visit interwovenhealth.com to learn more. Let's jump back to Stacy and Stephanie. I was curious to know their thoughts about providing an alternative to the emergency room experience that could include these pop-up healthcare architecture spaces Bronte and Damien proposed. Could their shipping container testing sites be turned into a treatment space for someone experiencing a mental health crisis? Another option, you know, it's not to say that everybody that presents in the emergency department in mental health crisis ultimately needs long-term inpatient care. There are a certain percentage of that population that could benefit from intensive outpatient or partial hospitalization programs, which are more kind of day-long treatment programs in which you still go home at the end of the day. However, in order to make that determination, it's hard for staff to do so when the patient is actively in crisis. And so as a result, the other modality that we're seeing in or adjacent to emergency departments are things called crisis stabilization units. And these are really meant to be short-term spaces for a patient to de-escalate, for staff members trained in mental health to interact with the patient, to stabilize them, to do a, a kind of true assessment and understand what path of treatment is really going to benefit them the most. So we're starting to see more and more interest from health systems in creating zones like that, that the environments themselves are, are going to be safer. They're truly dedicated and meant for people in mental health crisis, and they're going to be more therapeutic than a medical environment. Crisis stabilization units are effective in providing services like suicide prevention, behavioral health treatment, diverting the need to enter a higher level of care, and addressing acute distress. Studies show that cost of crisis stabilization centers is significantly less than psychiatric inpatient units, and satisfaction among clients is usually greater. There's other solutions, like the living room model, that is a walk-in respite center for individuals in crisis that are hallmarked by a more home-like atmosphere that can provide a longer stabilization time than 24 hours. So what are some of the things to consider when designing not only for crisis stabilization units, but clinical spaces in general? I think art, color, texture, pattern, that all kind of goes hand in hand. And also, there, a lot of times, that can all be tied into wayfinding. And, you know, when we say wayfinding, too, it's important to think about wayfinding from the very first moment that somebody wants or thinks about needing to use this service to the moment that they actually engage with the first person in the facility. So how is it labeled in and around the community? How is the awareness of that facility spread in and around the community? Is the entrance to the main entrance clear and visible and welcoming and brightly lit? So the more welcoming it can be, to the community, are there assets in the building that actually act as a community amen amenity to um, help with that? Is there a corner park that can be used during the day or a plaza where, you know, artists can come and sell goods? Or possibly observe murals on the walls made by local artists. But other things to creating a calming and healing environment, like I mentioned, the sound is really important, lighting for sure, using natural materials, having actual visible 
engagement with nature outside, but also outdoor spaces where patients can go step out of the crisis stabilization unit into a little courtyard to breathe some fresh air. All of that is important in helping to create that calming environment. You know, I, I can probably keep going, like providing patients with choice while they're in these spaces. Can they move their seat by the window if they want? Can they move it in front of the TV? Can they control the lighting in one of the quiet rooms so that they can, you know, close their eyes for a little bit? All of that is much different sounding, I think, than an ED, you know, and hopefully those are all kind of elements and components that actually enhance their ability to destabilize and begin to have a conversation with a clinician to figure out their long-term plan. I also found an interesting connection between furniture and mental health from Denver-based architect Donald Ruggles, who authored a book titled Beauty, Neuroscience, and Architecture. He says that jagged edges and sharp points are design features that can cause anxiety when overused, and that pieces with rounded edges, like our Joelle Ottoman from Interwoven, allows our nervous system to take a breath. There's one thing, just to make it super clear, I think scale, like the scale of this facility is a huge factor in how people perceive it and how people understand it to have stigma or not. You know, does it look and feel like a rec center that's tucked into a neighborhood? Does it feel more like a medical office building or does it feel like a hospital, which is just, you know, massive 12-story infrastructure for caring for people? The the experience of those spaces are just going to be very, very different. I'm really interested in the idea that the way we choose to design short-term and long-term treatment spaces for mental health can directly impact societal stigmas around this type of care. Because let's be totally honest here. Many of us think that institutionalized care, if not all mental health treatment facilities, look like Medfield State Hospital, where they kept Leonardo DiCaprio in Shutter Island. But why? Where did the stigma around psychiatric hospitals actually come from? So I'm going to just jump back a little bit further in time to give you a little bit of a larger context in terms of the history behind it, because you kind of alluded to 50s, 60s, 70s have a little bit of a darker past, and I want to make sure that we capture the, the time before that period because the actual original intention behind what at that time were called state asylums had really genuinely great intentions that were very different from the perception that society today has from the 50s and 70s. So around the 40s and 50s of the 1800s, a gentleman with the last name of Kirkbride began to develop an architectural plan. And he actually was a physician, but he worked, you know, back then, I'm not sure if architectural licenses were so closely monitored, but he ultimately became an influencer of the design for state asylums. And he really stressed things like access to daylight. He thought a lot about corridors and the way people move through the spaces. He would stagger the corridors to create not so long linear views down them, but to keep uh, visual engagement happening as you move through the space. He ultimately created these campuses around the country that genuinely the intention was to heal people that were inflicted with mental illness. He also not only thought about it from the patient side of things, but also the staff perspective as well. He believed in paying people that work there really fair wages and also provided really good living quarters for the people that were on site helping to care for the patients. And so this is like the original history of kind of, you know, the first state asylum. We still talk about all these things when designing for health-related spaces, the importance of access to daylight and eliminating long corridors that can cause fatigue, 
Kirkbride even thought to consider the staff and their needs when caring for patients as well. This guy was on to something. Now, after the wars, really after World War II, funding models changed. A lot of state asylums and a lot of state funding was pulled away. There also was introduction of different medical treatment advances, advances in actual medicine for mental health patients. And simultaneously, there was a shift to more nursing home environment of care for elderly people that were suffering from mental illness. And so the population was shifted from state asylums that were intended for mental health treatment into more like nursing home settings. That's kind of you know, a lot of the movies from that time period portrayed in that kind of way and stuff involved that. So that's really an area, you know, decreased in staff, decreased in funding, overcrowdedness, all of that happened during that time period. And it built upon itself to not do any favors for the patients and not do any favors long term for the perception from the public. And it was seen as far away out of town, not in my backyard. These people were sent to these facilities for the rest of their life rather than the goal being to try to get them reintegrated into society. And honestly, we haven't quite shaken the stigma of that time period yet. Like Stephanie said, it's most often this time period where people get stuck and make assumptions about the origins of psychiatric treatment spaces. I think that's why it's so important to reach back further and understand that the true intention of these facilities was to heal people. There was that time period and then, you know, in the last maybe 20 years, there's really been a big shift back towards patient-centered care, private entities taking on a bigger role because state funding is just starting, I'd say in the last maybe 10 years to, to come back around. So private entities starting to take on the role of creating spaces for people with mental illness. So all of that has you know, been transforming for sure, but we're as a society kind of still stuck on the stigma that was created around the 70s, for sure. The importance of dismantling the stigma around mental health and the spaces that treat it is critical. The stigma touches far more than asylums and behavioral care spaces. A 2019 national poll from the American Psychiatric Association found that mental health stigma is still a major challenge in the workplace. About half of workers were concerned about discussing mental health issues at their jobs. More than one in three were concerned about retaliation or being fired if they sought mental health care. They also found that more than half of those suffering with a mental illness don't receive help for their disorders because often they're afraid of being treated differently or looked down upon. So what can we do to start dismantling these belief structures? We're starting to see a trend where mental health services are being integrated more and more into a community wellness campus. So can we think about these services along the entire community, uh, uh, entire mental health continuum of care, everything from just sitting down for an hour and talking with a counselor, all the way to true long-term inpatient care for 10 days or maybe even more. Can this coexist on a campus that also has recreational amenities, spiritual amenities, walking paths, parks? You know, is this just a whole wellness campus? And these are just a couple of the services that this campus provides. That kind of equalizes the reason for going there in terms of you're not stepping onto this campus because you have a diagnosed mental illness. You're stepping on this campus because you're interested in doing something while you're there for your health and wellness. This concept of wellness campuses, or also known as healthcare villages, carries with it an entire paradigm shift in how we do healthcare as a country. 
it pivots us away from this idea of just focusing on treating the sick and instead moving towards keeping people healthy. And whether you're talking about pop-ups filled with local art that are placed throughout the community or a centralized health hub in a downtown area, the key here is visibility. Stigma often comes from a lack of understanding or a fear of what you don't know. Research shows that simply knowing or having contact with someone with a mental illness is one of the best ways to break down stigmas. When it's personal, it becomes way less scary and much more relatable. And are there moments on that campus that we can take advantage of to start to educate the public about mental illness? Can art that's being created in an inpatient unit be on display in the lobby gallery? Can patients actually run the coffee shop for life skills training? There's a whole bunch of then moments where interaction can happen between people with mental illness and community members can merge and seamlessly integrate into one another. But the desire for these spaces to be located in downtown environments, in downtown urban settings, in community settings, integrated with community, quite honestly, that's, it's a new thing. It's a new perspective from our clients. It's a new willingness by communities to accept these into their neighborhoods. One thing to add to, in addition, is this idea that any partnerships that can be formed out of this campus, the wellness campus, can also bring their own amenities. For example, is there an on-site garden that maybe also produces food, but is therapeutic in nature and perhaps has volunteers. And so you're starting to destigmatize by getting that sort of crossover. And, and so there are other ways that other organizations can partner or buckle on to these wellness centers. I, I have a client here in Denver who they primarily do outpatient mental health, but they don't do any facilities that don't include meditation spaces or yoga spaces or just community gathering group spaces. And then they often will also host AA meetings, those sorts of things. So anything else that we can sort of bundle up with these types of programs will, will go toward that end of destigmatizing the treatment. A great reference project, if you'd like to dive deeper, is the Metro Health Village near Grand Rapids, Michigan, which opened in 2007. Wellness campuses have been evolving for a few years, but this was one of the first to be built, and it features everything from family-friendly play parks, health screenings, senior living facilities, long-term care treatment, and a Hyatt hotel. It's linked in our show notes if you want to check it out. I would say that one thing that we're seeing is that we do everything that we can to make these facilities feel as residential as possible. We, we talk a lot about, you know, not, here's a great example, not wanting to use a stainless steel toilet like you might find in a jail, even though it's probably the safest one on the market, right? But that's not always the best choice because we're trying to create environments that are healing. And so we're really mindful of making selections that really build out a site to feel like it's a place you really want to be. In this setting, we have to constantly balance patient choice with supervision. And I think we've developed some better strategies for how to give options to patients, even whether it may be seating choices within a single space or different types of spaces that they can go to, whether it might be courtyard space or outdoor porch space or quiet rooms with rocking chairs, those sorts of things. Just 
trying to be super mindful about how we can balance that equation of supervision with option. Especially in long-term inpatient spaces, that balance can be hard for any designer to strike. It's the age-old challenge of having to hold both safety and beauty at the same time. Both are crucial, but one often gets sacrificed for the other. I think that we as designers could learn a lot from what's being done in places like Europe and in Canada. They just, they don't come from that sort of risk-averse position that we tend to have here in the United States. And it is what it is, but we have clients who are very risk averse for reasons that are driven by things out of our control, right? And so when you take that standpoint, all of a sudden, it really drives decisions that are in tremendous tension with the intent of wanting to make spaces that are residential. But, you know, in places like Europe, they don't seem to have the same pressures. And so I think there's a lot that we could learn. I'll add to that. As projects have become more and more prominent over the last 10 years, there's been more interest by society in the United States to invest more and more in mental health care and mental health care spaces. Manufacturers have come out with different products. The advances in products that we've seen over the last even five years is huge. And they're developing these products in tangent with clinicians, with patients and with architects and designers that are familiar with these spaces to create safe products that have a different aesthetic than older products that we might be thinking of. We couldn't agree more. Providing furniture that has woven research and evidence-based design throughout the solutions can help find that perfect balance between safety and aesthetics. But there's one more nugget that Stacy mentioned that you'll want to consider when designing for short-term or long-term mental health treatment spaces. I think we've gotten to a really good point in our society where we're design buildings for people with a variety of mobility considerations, mobility impairments. We have not gotten to a point in our world to where we are designing thoughtfully for people with neurodivergent requirements. So yeah, I I think there's a really strong parallel there. And as awareness increases and as we become more skillful about honoring and, and really, it starts for, with a place of empathy, right? Just talking to the people who will ultimately use the space. You know, sensors on plumbing fixtures has become very popular. It's sort of of the moment right now because of the pandemic, right? So everyone is installing faucets that are sensor-driven and toilets that automatically flush and hand dryers because they don't want people touching things. And I mean, it's all well and good, but at the same time, we have to remember that those solutions are not for everyone. There are people who, when they step up to a faucet, well, I mean, shoot, this is all of us as well, right? We step up to the faucet and you can't figure out how to, where exactly to put your hand to get the thing to work. That's very frustrating, right? But imagine if you're already in an agitated state. Imagine if you use the toilet and you step away and it doesn't flush and you think it should flush and it's just... When things don't work correctly, they just add to agitation for certain people. And and so when we talk about wanting to control, wanting to have control of your environment, those things actually are counter to that goal. And so it's up to us to just remember that. I mean, it's fine, you know, in the pandemic, like I said, people are drawn to them as solutions, but they can't be universally applied to all situations because that's not the right solution in many cases. We can't have a conversation about designing for mental health without looking at how everyone's mental faculties are different. We can also all count on both hands how many times the flush sensor hasn't worked and we've all gotten agitated. 
It's been a continual theme this season about how individual we all are and how leading with empathy empowers us to design for everyone, one person at a time. We plan to have an entire episode on neurodivergence coming up in season two, and we can't wait to dive deeper into this subject. But especially as it relates to designing for mental health, we must do our due diligence to think about who the actual end user is and what experiences they bring to the table. As we grow in our understanding of how to respond to this shadow pandemic, whether that be through pop-up crisis stabilization units throughout the country or centralized wellness campuses that it can include a variety of treatment options, we need to be putting these ideas or strategies in our back pocket to implement beyond just clinical spaces. So, you know, a lot of the spaces that we've talked about today, crisis stabilization, inpatient units, even outpatient, are intended to provide care for someone post-crisis. But crisis, mental health crisis, happens not in these facilities, but elsewhere out in our communities. And how can we start to think about all of the things that we talked about earlier about the design strategies and overlay them with the design of spaces that people use on a daily basis out in our community? So what would a big box store look like or how would it change if we started to think about things like daylight and views and wayfinding and building in quiet nooks off to the side for someone to just escape the, the kind of chaos or commotion. Design with dignity and empathy in mind as we're creating these spaces and think about the individual users of the space, their experience, their unique experience, their shared experience, and how this would ultimately, um, you know, influence really intentional design decisions of these spaces. Um, I think kind of, you know, we think, we say access to daylight is really important, but at the same time, if you're designing for perhaps a population with, um, in the VA setting, a lot of exposure to glass with, um, especially, you know, when they have to put their back to that glass can be really triggering and traumatizing. So, who is your audience? Who are you designing for? What are their, like I said, individual and shared experiences? And how can we keep the why of that facility in the forefront while we're designing? And then, you know, also simultaneously keep the idea of patient dignity in the forefront, which kind of goes to what Stacey was saying, what's the right balance for the environment that will preserve patient dignity, but also give them choice and also be safe for uh, staff and patients as well. As we continue to learn that healing is best done within the context of community, we must allow these findings to inform the way we design mental and physical healing spaces. Design can not only respond to the growing need for mental health services by exploring alternative solutions like pop-ups, but it can also champion the systemic breakdown of stigmas around mental health simply by positioning these treatment spaces to be seen and engaged with by our local communities. And designing for mental health doesn't stop at the doors of clinical spaces. We can all benefit from spaces that empower us to have a healthy mindset and familiarize us to those who need treatment. This podcast is brought to you by Kimball International. Thanks so much to Stacy, Stephanie, Damian, and Bronte for chatting with us today. Also, thank you to Interwoven for being our show sponsor. For more content, check out our show notes and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Alternative Design Podcast. Thanks for listening.